On the cold, dreary morning of January 10th, 1916, two sets of parents awoke to discover their children were missing. In a home on Garfield Avenue in Schuylkill Haven, Mr. and Mrs. Harry Mingle were looking for their 20-year-old son, Clayton. At approximately the same time, just across the Schuylkill River in a neighboring borough of Crisona, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Hepler of Silliman Street were alarmed to discover that their 14-year-old daughter, Helen, was nowhere to be found. The Heplers and Mangles weren't sure where their children had gone, but of one thing they were certain, that Clayton and Helen had run away together. Both families had been dead set against the relationship and had refused to allow Clayton and Helen to get married, and so the young lovers did what young lovers have done since the dawn of time. They left their homes under the cover of darkness and eloped. Those who knew the pair insisted they had gone to Maryland, where Helen's tender age wouldn't be a deterrent in obtaining a marriage license. Whether they ever reached Maryland is unknown. For three months, no one saw or heard a thing from either Clayton or Helen. Supervisors at the Eastern Steel Mill, where Clayton had worked, had not heard from him. Whatever events took place during that time remains a mystery. But when the young lovers were finally discovered, many believed that Clayton and Helen had never made it out of sight of their homes. It was around 8 o'clock on the morning of April 5th when a 14-year-old schoolboy, Norman Nagel, saw something floating in the river behind the Bast knitting mill in Schuylkill Haven. The boy's excitement turned to horror when he realized that it was a dead body and he reported his find to a nearby resident. Armed with poles and rope, Daniel Reed and Samuel and Walter Bast disentangled the corpse from a pile of logs and debris and fished the body from the swirling black water. When Deputy Coroner Santee arrived on the scene from Crisona, he immediately suspected that the body was that of Clayton Mangle. Photographs and postcards found in a young man's red and black checkered overcoat seemed to verify the identity of the corpse. Henry Mangle, who was working at the Pennsylvania and Reading Railroad car shop at the time, was summoned to the scene and knew at once that it was his missing son. There was no doubt about it. Clayton was a handsome young man who took great pride in his appearance. Henry immediately recognized the blue suit, the gleaming tie pin, the gold pocket watch, and expensive cufflinks. Clayton had been dressed in his Sunday best at the time of his death, which, according to the stopped pocket watch, must have occurred at 6.30 in the morning. Because of the advanced state of decomposition, it was unclear if Clayton had sustained any injuries, and this led authorities to believe that Clayton and Helen had jumped into the icy water on a day of their disappearance after making a suicide pact. Rumor had it that a letter written by one of the missing youngsters found in a tin box by children playing near the river, had described their plan to take their own lives by jumping from the Lehigh Valley Railroad Bridge, and the condition of the badly decomposed body proved that it had been submerged in the water for quite some time. The river was immediately dragged for Helen's body, and even though the search continued for days, searchers were unable to locate the missing teenager. Meanwhile, an autopsy revealed that Clayton had not gone into the icy water unscathed. Physicians discovered that his skull had been fractured, 
the bones of his cheek, nose, and forehead crushed. There were several fractures in the bones of the right arm and several broken ribs. Teeth were missing, as if knocked out. These details presented authorities with a riddle. Had he been struck by a train while crossing the railroad bridge? And if so, had Helen managed to escape the same grisly fate? Of course, they could not rule out the possibility of suicide. Clayton's injuries could have been sustained from falling from a great height, and the bridge was sufficiently high enough. And while the Schuylkill River was swift, it was deceptively shallow, its bed strewn with jagged rocks and boulders. Until Helen Hepler could be found, the nature of Clayton's death would have to remain a mystery. Unfortunately, time was not on their side. The rotting remains of Clayton Mengel had to be buried at once. On January, April 8th, a funeral was held for the young man at the family home on Garfield Avenue. While state police from Pottsville were dragging the Schuylkill River for the body of 14-year-old Helen Hepler, evidence developed that Clayton Mengel was not the only man who had been in pursuit of Helen's affections. Is it possible that Clayton had been murdered by a rival suitor? In the days that followed the discovery of the young man's body, reports came in from various locations across the state that Helen had been seen alive and well, though her parents strongly refuted this claim. Like most folks from Cressona and Schuylkill Haven who knew the parties involved, the Heplers were sold on the suicide pact theory. But was this belief rooted in fact, or rooted in a desire to protect their teenage daughter's reputation? Who was the real Helen Hepler? What had she seen? And more importantly, where had she gone? The suicide pact theory was also called into question when a prominent physician who had examined Clayton's body announced that it was unlikely that Clayton's injuries were caused by jumping into the river. It was his belief that the injuries were consistent with an act of violence. With little evidence to go on to support this theory, Detectives turned their attention to the suicide note, which had been found in a tin tweed liniment box on the riverbank. Appearing to have been written by a trembling hand, the note read, On account of the circumstances, we have decided to end our troubles. You can find our bodies in the river. The note was signed C.M. and H.H. If the note had been a hoax, the perpetrator had gone through great trouble in making it appear as if the letter had been written by frostbitten fingers on a cold, wintry night. The shaky penmanship would make comparing handwriting samples very difficult, if not impossible. But the police had a plan. If the handwriting matched that of either Clayton or Helen, the river would be dragged all the way to Reading. If a match could not be made, they would continue their search on the assumption that Helen Hepler was alive and perhaps an accessory to murder. A few days later, it was determined that the note was indeed a fake, and the nature of the investigation shifted from a recovery operation to a search for a missing person. Police began running down every lead, no matter how far-fetched or fantastic. They explored the possibility that Helen Hepler may have had underworld connections, and might have been part of a human trafficking ring. 
Had Clayton been lured to his death by a teenager's seduction? They also wondered if maybe the truth might have been the reverse. Perhaps Clayton had abducted the girl with the purpose of selling her into white slavery. Was it the 14-year-old girl who had inflicted such gruesome injuries to Clayton while attempting to escape? While the grieving parents might have found either of these possibilities absurd, the fact remained that Schuylkill County, at the time, had an unsavory reputation for prostitution and gang activity. Because of these speculations, the Mengel-Hepler affair, as it was called, became a sensation, and newspapers rushed into print every wild rumor. One newspaper, the Schuylkill Haven Call, even went so far as to claim that the fake suicide note had been planted by a reporter from a rival newspaper, the Reading Telegram News Times. On April 13th, a coroner's jury convened at the office of Dr. G. H. Moore and investigated this case from every angle, and concluded that there was no proof to support the claim that Clayton Mengel and Helen Hepler had made a suicide pact. Witnesses testified that both had been in good spirits when last seen alive at 7 o'clock on the evening of Sunday, January 9th. When last seen, Clayton had left his friends at the corner of Garfield and Center Avenues in Schuylkill Haven and was proceeding toward Cressona. I'll meet you downtown about 9 o'clock, he told his friends as he departed. At approximately the same time, Helen was saying goodbye to her friends at the railroad crossing on Pottsville Street before proceeding towards Schuylkill Haven. According to Samuel Killian and Evan Steinbrunn, relatives of Clayton Mangle, they had witnessed Helen's father making threats of physical violence against Clayton. Mr. Hepler, however, denied these accusations and said that he had nothing against Clayton except for his age. Lorena Hefner, a friend of the missing girl, also provided some important details. Lorena testified that on the evening of Monday, January 10th, she had found a woman's hat on the tracks by the north side of the railroad bridge. Lorena was positive that it was a blue temporary hat that had belonged to Helen Hepler. Lorena, who was with her friends at the time, thought nothing of it. She had not yet learned of Helen's disappearance, and she left the hat on the ground. But the most interesting fact to emerge from the hearing was the fact that Helen had not withdrawn one cent from her bank account before her disappearance, and had left $4.80 in cash in her bedroom on the night she was last seen alive. This seemed to dispel the notion that she was planning to elope with Clayton Mangle. Corporal Everett of the state police ordered another search of the river after retrieving the hat seen by Lorena Hefner on January 10th. It was unclear if he had a double suicide, a murder-suicide, or an accident on his hands, but he had a feeling that Helen's body was somewhere in the Schuylkill River. For weeks, the search continued, but nothing was found. And then, on July 3rd, a workman from the C.A. Fisher Coal Washery in Landingville, midway between Schuylkill Haven and Auburn, made a horrendous discovery the body of a headless female on the canal bank. It was Paul Cagiorno who made the find after observing a flock of crows and vultures feasting upon something. Cagiorno ran to his house a short distance away, grabbed the shotgun, and began shooting at the birds. After the scavengers took flight, 
Cajorno waded through the murky water and coal dirt and found the body, which was located about 150 feet from the covered bridge at Landingville, where Main Street presently crosses the river. Cajorno informed a neighbor, Robert Eiler, who in turn informed the state police. About 90 minutes later, Captain Wilhelm arrived on the scene, accompanied by the coroner and deputy coroner. By this time, word of the discovery had spread, and a large gathering of onlookers flanked the banks of the river. The majority of the onlookers were female, and a Schuylkillhaven newspaper remarked, Notwithstanding a stench that arose from the decomposed body, the women remained until it was removed. It was also reported that the body had been so thoroughly devoured by birds and other animals that, at first, it was impossible to tell which end of the body was which. As for the head, it was not found until Captain Wilhelm and Coroner Moore had cut away the victim's skirt and sweater. Charles Hepler was called upon to view the remains, but the body was so badly mangled and decomposed that he couldn't be sure whether or not it was his daughter. For that matter, he couldn't even be sure that what he was looking at was human. The Schuylkill Haven Call reported that the left arm and both legs were missing, and that all of the hair and scalp had become detached, leaving nothing more than a bare skull. The body found at Landingville was wearing a blue dress, and the locket, bracelet, buttons, and other items found on the body were similar to Helen's but the highly polluted sulfuric water had eroded these items to such an extent that Mr. Hepler couldn't be certain that they had belonged to Helen. The remains were transported to the Schuylkillhaven almshouse in the hope that Mrs. Hepler would be able to make the identification, but she could not. It was a local merchant, W.L. McLaren, who finally examined the locket and declared that it had been the very one that he had sold to Helen Hepler a week before her disappearance. As for Coroner Moore, he was convinced that Helen Hepler had been found at last, and stated that it was his belief that Clayton and Helen had been walking the tracks when they had been struck by a train, though no railroaders ever came forward to claim responsibility. None had recalled striking anything on the tracks on that fateful, mysterious morning, though one train crew did stop that day out of concern that they might have struck something on the tracks. They walked the tracks all morning, but found nothing. Nonetheless, Moore declared that there would be no inquest, stating that nothing could be learned from the remains. For years after the tragedy, many Schuylkill County residents continued to have their doubts about what really happened to Clayton and Helen, though the Heplers and Mengels were content to put the matter to rest. Helen Hepler's funeral took place at the family home on Silliman Street, and services were conducted by Reverend Schaefer of St. Mark's Reformed Church. Her body was laid to rest in the Cressona Cemetery on July 4, 1916. In a rather morbid coincidence, Paul Cajorna, the workman who had found the body, also happened to be the person who found one of the girl's missing legs after it had been pulled up by the scraper line at the Landingville Washery. As the body had been buried over a week earlier, Kojorna decided to throw it back into the river, where, in all probability, it remains to this day. Pennsylvania 
If you enjoyed this podcast, look for my latest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 2, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart.com, or through the Sunbury Press website at www.sunburypressstore.com. The Pennsylvania Oddities podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Find the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite programs. New episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Okay.